Thanks, Jan, for remembering to remind them of sweets after lunch. We just started that program Wednesday, and we had our, our one of our largest crowds, but you do need to make those reservations. For at least uh, two generations of preachers in South and North Georgia, because at that time Georgia was one conference, now it's two, uh, Bishop Arthur Moore who was bishop for 30 years, uh, became for us the kind of a prototype of what a a Methodist preacher should be like. We were in awe of his gifted preaching and of himself as an individual. All of us uh, clustered around him in his last years to get words of advice and instruction from him. I remember how shaky he was one, one arm and hand simply out of control. And that palsied movement was so uh, tremendous that it would uh, distract those to whom he was trying to speak. So he, he would have a chair turned around so that he could hold on to the back of that chair and control uh, most of that uh, involuntary movement while he was speaking. I remember that, but I also recall that there was a part of this bishop that, that never shook. It was who he was at the core of his being. Seminary students would walk uh, up this road from Emory to visit him, now an old man sitting on the front porch of his home. And they would ask the bishop, sooner or later they would ask, Bishop, um, what, should we, what, what advice do you have for a young preacher? What is the single most important piece of advice? And without fail, he always said, be very sure of Jesus. Be very sure of Jesus. I believe it was the I know it was the kind of certainty that Paul had. The kind of certainty that, that you have in these high and Wonderful words in First Colossians. When Paul tells us, not only is Jesus important, but Jesus has preeminence over everyone. That he is the agent of God used in creation. That uh, the world was created by him and for him, and, and, and in him the world holds together. He, he holds it all together. That in in Jesus, the fullness of God, the deity, is is pleased to dwell. Now, not like like the Holy Spirit imbues one of us, but uh, uniquely the dwelling place, the residence of God, the only begotten, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. This kind of preeminence that, that Paul elaborated in these beautiful words, the kind of central certainty that uh, Bishop Moore had is uh, absolutely required for leadership in the kingdom of God. You cannot be a leader in the church as a clergy or as a layperson apart from this core belief concerning who Jesus is. The first requirement for leadership is 
get that fact straight. During these next uh, several weeks, when our country is preoccupied with a whole episode of, of leadership, I want to address the subject of leadership Jesus style. I want to talk about how Jesus produced leaders. Because of all the leaders the race has ever had, Jesus is preeminent. Never has there been a leader like Jesus. And I, have, I want to explore with you his technique and how he was able to hand over to 12 nondescript individuals the responsibility for the kingdom on earth. Now, the bishop was sure. He said this is the single most important fact for a Christian, being sure who Jesus is. The bishop died in 1960. It's interesting that we seem to be growing more progressively unsure of who Jesus is. If we had to go to the 90s and search for the one burning question that we encountered again and again in the 90s, a good case could be made for the fact that it was a question, who was Jesus? Used in the past tense, who was Jesus? Like he's a historical, shadowy, remote figure who lived 2,000 years ago. I say we could make a case for that being the question of the 90s, because at one time or other, it was the lead story on, on all of our, our major news magazines like Time and U.S. News and the rest. And at one time or other, every one of our, our uh, networks dealt with that question, and not only once, but uh, more than once. And, and every time uh, the question was lifted up, one had the impression, uh, got the impression, that in our culture, we are seeing the marginalization of Jesus. Uh, Bishop Roy Moore makes the national news and is highly controversial because he has, a, he has a copy of the Ten Commandments on the wall in his courtroom. A high school in Michigan is at the center of a storm because in one of its halls, someone had hung a, a portrait of Jesus, a well-known uh, picture of the master, and it was finally removed, you remember, by the courts because it, it promoted Christianity. What are we, what are we seeing in our, in our culture? We are, we are seeing football uh, players who, when they score a touchdown, they point to the heavens or give some sign that they give credit to the Lord. We see people who, who, who place themselves behind the goalpost so that when the extra point is kicked in spite of themselves, the cameras have to pan John 3.16, a banner with that message on it. And, and when we see that, we're pleased that these symbols are there. But by virtue of the fact that we have to make our inroads like that, that we can be pleased with little signs like that, it, it means that we have the mentality of the marginalized because it's no longer fashionable in the marketplace to speak of Jesus. Not openly. One's faith is supposed to be one's personal uh, uh, business, but it is not to be spoken of in polite and high society, 
but or in the marketplace, we are simply to be restricted to our privacy of beliefs. The same kind of mentality you see in countries where the uh, communists were once in control. I say we see some of that. Now, in the church, how is it different? Unfortunately, we see uh, some uncertainty about who Jesus is within the church, too. The issue would be which came first, the church or the culture, and we could debate that for a long time. But in, in, in the church, we see some of it. I have a friend who, who is familiar with a pulpit committee in a large uh, Protestant church uh, where they call their pastors, and he was uh, telling me about his experience of, of looking at a, a list of prospects. The list had been furnished them by some higher-ups in the denomination, and they were to go out and interview these persons, listen to them preach, and then make some suggestions. He said they discovered early on that all of these seminary-educated pastors, some with their doctorates, that four out of the six deny the divinity of Jesus and say flatly, he never rose from the dead. That uh, within the church. And then I began to think about our own denomination and how we just had this tremendous uh, general conference so that people are saying all over America that the United Methodist Church is poised for its best years, and I happen to believe that from the bottom of my heart, that among the other things we managed to do at this general conference is we wrote into the mission of the United Methodist Church this statement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the Lord of all. And you, we think that's tremendous, and it is tremendous. But why in the world would you need in a church 2,000 years after the death and, and, and resurrection of Jesus, would you, would you need to write a statement like that? I mean, uh, it would be like a, a, a gas station getting excited because they sell gas. I mean, it is the, it is the nature of the church, the, the, the church itself. Jesus is the head of the church, and of course, he's the Lord and the Savior. And so we see some, some slippage about who Jesus is. Now, obviously, the master couldn't leave his disciples unclear about who he was and is, uh, because to have done so would have, would have uh, meant the failure of his movement even before it got underway. So the question then emerges, since these disciples came to clarity, how did, they, how did, they get, how did Jesus get them there? Listen to these words from the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter. Um, just... Um, the verse 17, when, when Simon has just declared that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said this, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not hear this from any human being. How do we get clear? How did we get clear like Simon and the others did? How do we come to the point when it's not something up here, but it's in our heart, it's in our hands, it's in our feet, it's in our pocketbooks, it's in everything that we are, a steady, 
conviction about who Jesus is. How does that happen? Any casual student of the Scripture knows that the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a turning point. In Mark, it's uh, chapter 8. In Luke, it's chapter 9. In Matthew, it's chapter 16. What happens in those chapters that the scholars and every casual reader says is a turning point? I'll tell you what happens. It's at that point that Jesus asked his disciples, what's the scuttlebutt? Who are pe- what, are, what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And, and they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some say you're, you're uh, uh, Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. And Jesus, uh, not content with carried tales, said, but you tell me. You tell me, who, who do you say that I am? And this is when Peter gives this great declaration, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after that declaration, after it had come clear, after they got it, after they understood who Jesus is, then he starts talking to them about the cross, then he starts talking about the resurrection, then he starts talking about suffering, and he starts talking about uh, all of our redemption. That's the turning point in those Gospels. Now, how, how is it that he had these these 12 disciples, all of whom were as thick-headed as any of us could be, how in the world did he bring them? What was his technique, his leadership style for bringing them to an awareness of who he is? Well, here we're grateful for Matthew because not Mark and not Luke, but Matthew records this wonderful verse, the 17th verse. Matthew says... Jesus, after Simon told him, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew records that Jesus says, Blessed are you, son of John, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, man, I didn't tell you who I was. (laughs) I never said that. I, I didn't, I didn't, you didn't get, you didn't come to this conviction through an argument. You didn't, you didn't come because of propaganda. You, you didn't come because of a PhD dissertation. Flesh and blood didn't tell you that. My heavenly father revealed that to you. That settled conviction came through revelation, not through that argumentative word, but through revelation. And it got hold of all of them. Well, you say, how did, how did Jesus do that? Obviously, because all of his other teachings were waiting on this moment. All of a sudden, you have a whole different Bible after this moment. Obviously, he wants to bring them there. How did he do that? Let me answer that, or attempt to answer that by saying that you and I love deductive reasoning. I mean, we like to just tell somebody, that's the truth, Bubba, and here are the reasons. One, two, three, four, five. I mean, we like that. That's the way you get it in a courtroom, and that's the way you just, that's the way we deal with each other. We, We state the truth as we understand it, and then we give all of our reasons. 
and, and that appeals to people. Uh, I think about Lee Strobel's book. Lee Strobel has written a book called The Case for Jesus. And he started out with a premise that Jesus is who he said he was, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Lee uh, spends an entire fascinating book assembling the evidence from all the different sources to prove his case. And I remember one particular fast, uh, that was very fascinating for me was when he talked about the prophecies in the Old Testament. Rob was preaching on some of them today. He talked about the prophecies in the Old Testament, and he said there were at least 48 major prophecies about Jesus, which he fulfilled every single one of them perfectly. Then he broke it down. He said, what would be the odds that some one person could accidentally fulfill eight of those prophecies? Not 48, just break it down, make it simple. What, if, what would be the odds that someone could just accidentally come on the scene who would fulfill eight of those pr prophecies perfectly? He, he figured it out, a mathematician figured it out, and would be one chance in 100 million billion chances. Man, that's like winning the Texas lottery right there. I mean, 100 million billion chances. Now, if you have a hard time getting hold of those numbers, make every one of those numbers a silver dollar. If you did that, every one of those, if, if you made them into silver dollars, the silver dollars would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. And then he said, if you really want to understand it, Mark one of those silver dollars and hide it somewhere in Texas in those two feet of silver dollars. Blindfold somebody, walk him all over the state, and then tell him still blindfolded, reach, reach down and pick up the marked silver dollar. And if he could do that consistently, then you would understand the odds of Jesus uh, or anybody accidentally fulfilling eight of those prophecies. Not to mention 48. Now, that gets to be a big number. We're talking eight. I, I like that kind of reasoning because it, mean, it makes us smart people. I mean, you, you'd, have a, you'd have to be a dummy not to get it when you hear reasoning like that. I, I like to reason that way. Here's the fact, and listen to me, dummy. Here are all the reasons. But do you know something? When you present all that uh, argument like that, it, it, it leaves people cold. They don't get it. You, you go find yourself a, a pagan and, and give them all the arguments and, and, and see how far you get. Jesus didn't give them the fact, the fact, and then all the arguments. You know what he did? He showed them the evidence and let them draw their own conclusions. He just showed them the evidence. He modeled leadership. He loved, he healed, he taught, he forgave, he raised the dead, he had a concern for every living person. He just modeled leadership, and after a while, they got it. 
Now, what that means is you don't have to be a brilliant to be brilliant to be a leader. You just have to be a Christian. You just have to walk out the Christian life. That's what you have to be. You have to model it. Jesus said, not the one who can say, Lord, Lord, and all those fancy terms, but the one who does the will of my Father. What did he do when those messengers came to him from John? John the Baptist in prison. John, whose faith is shaky. John, about to die. Wonders if it's all been worthwhile. He sends his messengers to Jesus. Are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? Or shall we look for another? What does Jesus say? You go tell that preacher, of course I'm the Messiah. Man, don't you remember? You announced me. You, you, your mother had a miraculous birth just like my mother. What are you talking about? Here all are... He didn't do that. He told those messengers, he said, you go back and tell John everything you see. The deaf can hear, the blind can see, the lame can walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the poor have good news, preach to them. You just go tell him what you see. See how our master taught? You see how he developed leadership in the kingdom of God? And when he developed, when he showed his leadership, Simon Peter got it in the 16th chapter of Matthew. And you know something? He got it to the core of his being. Listen to him. When he's an old man and he's writing the, the letter called 1 Peter and he comes to the third chapter and he's trying to help the church and the church is having a problem because some of the women are married to pagan husbands. We still have that problem with us. Some of the women are married to pagan husbands. Now, they didn't, they didn't marry pagans because the Scripture forbids that. The Scripture says, uh, don't be unequally yoked. So they didn't, they didn't marry a pagan. Somebody came to see me. Well, I've, dozens have come to see me. Pastor, he's not a Christian, but don't you think he'll straighten up after we get married? No, don't you think it'll all work out? I say, honey, have you ever seen a donkey and, a, and, a, and a, a camel hooked to the same yoke pulling a plow? <laughs> How do you think that's going to work? Uh, you know, it, so they didn't marry a pagan, but they, they became Christians and their husbands had not. So they, they asked Simon Peter, what, what can we do here? And, and listen to what he says. He says, you just walk it out. He said, they, they, some of them will change their behavior without a word just because they see your reverence and your love. Just walk it out. Some of them are going to get it. They won't get it with an argument. They won't get it with all kind of threats. You just Live it out, and they'll get it. Who was it that said, preach the gospel all the time. Use words when it's necessary. In just a moment, you're going to hear with your heart the most powerful sermon ever preached. 
the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Nobody has to spell it out. Broken bread and a poured out blood. You figure it out. Do you get it? Get the facts straight first. Amen. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin, and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin and lift our praises before God and one another. The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God to give our thanks and praise. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we, thy humble servants, desire thy fatherly goodness, mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, most humbly beseeching thee to grant that, by the merits and death of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and thy whole church may obtain forgiveness of sins and all other benefits of his passion. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and lively sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching thee that all we who are partakers of this holy communion may be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction. And although we be unworthy through our manifold sins to offer unto thee any sacrifice, Yet we beseech thee to accept this our bounden duty and service, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, by whom and with whom, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory be unto thee, O Father Almighty, world without end. Amen. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. our Lord Jesus Christ broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of Christ and be thankful. The blood, body of our Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of Jesus and be thankful. 
blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. to share in this sacrament with us. Our table is open. If you meet the conditions of this invitation, you will hold the element until I give you directions and we will partake at the same moment. Jesus Christ broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of him and be thankful.
the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of him and be thankful. When he comes, we will make him welcome. Wonderful promise and hope indeed. And that is our prayer. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Not simply to have another Christmas, but that the Lord Jesus Christ will finally come and usher in his kingdom completely in this world. That is our closing hymn. And as we sing that hymn, the invitation is given. The doors of our church are open. If you have this central certainty about who Jesus is, you want to give your life to him, we encourage you to come. For maybe you've already made that decision years ago, but you're feeling led by God to come and serve the Lord here at First Church. I invite you to come forward as we stand to sing our closing hymn. Let us stand.